inspire me to consistently and persistently pursue my potential. Uh, I have a really special guest for you today. <laughs> uh, this is literally my brother from another mother. Uh, this is my cousin, Eric Bibols, um, who is about two years older than me. And uh, as I was growing up as a kid, very much a, uh, you know, played the role of an older brother in many ways. Um, Eric's based in South Africa, where he, he, he grew up in Johannesburg, which is where my ancestors are from originally. And... Uh, We've lived together for a couple of years uh, when I graduated university and went down to South Africa. So he knows, he knows the light and the dark of Luma <laughs> intimately. <laughs> so first, it's true. Yeah, it is very true. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Coz. Thank you for taking the time to be with us today. Yeah. Thank you very much, Luz. I'm really happy to be here. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. So, so Coz, listen, one of the reasons I asked you to come on the podcast is um, I was fascinated when I visited you recently in Johannesburg. Uh, about the business that you're in today, because you're in, in the solar energy business and, um, you know, staying at your home and seeing how you live completely off grid, <laughs> how you charge your car as well with the electricity and how you also use all the overspilt to um, mine Bitcoin <laughs> was a real eye opener for me. <laughs> uh, and so I, I'd like to kind of focus on this because such obviously with the climate emergency, um, this is uh, an area I think that's going to grow in, in importance. Um, I know a lot of people, when the rising energy costs as well, are thinking about how they become more self-sufficient uh, from that perspective. But before we dive into that, can you give us a little bit of a, a backstory as to how you got involved in this business? Um, because, I, you know, you've been involved in lots of different things over the years. So, so what brought you to kind of where you are today? Well, solar energy always interested me my whole life. So when I, when I went to university, I did a year of electrical engineering. Well, it was actually aeronautical engineering, but it's, it's the same first couple of years at Varsity anyway. Mm -hmm. And I always had a, an extreme interest in um, science and technologies of the STEMS field, but I, I wouldn't call myself a heavily academically inclined person. So mm -hmm. as much as I loved the subject matter that I was getting taught at university, um, the way it was taught and the, 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 the lack of what I would call encouragement for people who don't follow the narrative that uh, professors and university types want you to follow frustrated me. And at the time, I, I, I mean, I, I kind of knew about solar panels, but I mean, they were so ridiculously expensive and the technology was seen as close to being alien. So just to give you context, I'm about 50. So I was at university in 1990. So 32 odd years ago was my first year at university and um, I actually remember I don't think it was in my first year at varsity it might have been a year or so later I, I bought a tiny solar panel uh, probably the size half the size of an A4 piece of paper that's the size that it. it was I think an 8 or a 10 watt panel and it cost me the equivalent in those days of around a thousand US dollars a thousand a thousand five hundred US dollars to give you an idea um, that would be almost two orders of magnitude more than you'd pay for the same um, panel now. I mean, that panel now would be, you know, probably a couple of dollars. Yeah, yeah. Sort of, that's the difference. So it was something that wasn't um, possible for any person in the private sector. It was something that was being used in the space race. It was, it was more an intellectual pursuit, and I managed to connect this solar panel to a calculator that I had taken apart and could feed the DC current directly into the calculator, and I thought I was uh, this breaking edge genius powering my calculator from a small solar panel. Um, I actually managed to fry the calculator within a day or two because even though it was a very small panel, unregulated DC at uh, one and a half volts higher than what the calculator was designed to run at fries it pretty quickly. But you know the intent, the intent, and the and the, the interest was there. 
Um, I then uh, spent, after first year at Varsity, I, I, I dropped out of university, um, let's just say under slightly uh, dubious circumstances. I didn't arrive for certain exams. I then changed track and went and did a Bachelor of Commerce degree at a university that allowed it. It was a remote university, UNISA, and I spent two years traveling across Europe. And that was kind of where I saw you and the family quite a bit because Ireland became my base at three or four times during that round-the-world trip. Yeah, so the, the that was, that was, that was, I remember distinctly coming to visit us in Ireland at the time because I was in university myself. I mean, hugely inspired by um, your travels because not only did you travel through Europe, you, you travel on mountain bikes. Uh, and yeah. you just travel through mountain bikes in Europe. You went all through North Africa as well, like into Israel. Um, mm. and then you, when you left Europe, you were off into the US and, and then in Australia. So you, you, it was a really uh, fascinating period in your life, wasn't it? Where you were studying mm. at the same time, riding on bikes all around the world. <laughs> yeah, no, it was. I, I don't think kids will ever be able to do what myself and my friend Stephen did, especially on the first half of that trip. We We took bicycles, we put panniers on them. I mean, these weren't specialist touring bikes they were just regular mountain bikes that we went and put panniers on we carried all of our clothing all of our cooking gear in my case all of my books to study so i think i had the region of 17 to 20 kilograms of books my one pannier was just books um, and uh, so I, I, was, I was pretty light on things that were required for camping yeah. um, i mean even my, my tent was so small i couldn't fit in it it basically was a tent big enough to cover my shoulders and my head it was a, a kiddie's camping tent because it happened to be the smallest tent I could find at the yeah. store. Yeah. So it, it was, and you know, and this is before the internet, so there was no cell phones. Like countries like Morocco and Europe, you know, in the more developed countries, you could make phone calls from phones. Yeah. But there, um, you know, in Morocco, and in, and we actually cycled into Algeria just before the start of the civil war. I think it was in 1991. Uh, the civil war literally started the week we cycled in across the border because we couldn't read the science in Arabic warning of conflict and the graffiti saying, hey, something's going on here. Right. We ended up being uh, turned around by some Americans who had been shot at about 30 kilometers ahead of where we were cycling because the plan was to cycle across Morocco, Algeria and Tunisia and then we couldn't get across Libya because the, the Americans hadn't murdered Muammar Gaddafi yet. So the country was basically closed and we were going to catch a ferry um, to uh, from Tunis to Malta, then Malta to Alexandra in Egypt. So we ended up cycling back to uh, to uh, Morocco to Rabat and flying to Cairo, and then cycling across um, Egypt uh, into Israel, and then across to Europe, where I spent time with you and the family, and then from there uh, to America, where I had, uh, sent my bicycle back, and I then bought a motorcycle and rode from New York to Los Angeles. And then went from there uh, to Hawaii, to Australia, spent a lot of time in Australia, rode a, a motorcycle across Australia and then back around the world via the Far East back to Dublin and back to South Africa and landed two or three days before the 1994 uh, elections, which was an incredible thing because I hadn't been exposed to the massive, massive social and political upheaval that had been happening for the last two years in South Africa mm, mm. and I was totally out of touch and it was it was quite an experience it took me probably six months to adjust to a country that was very very different mm. in one way but very much the same in another it, it, I can't explain it it's very hard I think unless you're a South African and unless you hadn't been exposed to that you wouldn't understand so that was a very it was an incredibly experiential time in my life. Um, and uh, I don't think that experience is available these days because of the interconnected nature of the world. I mean, I give you an example. When we were in Morocco, I had no contact with anyone outside of Morocco for three and a half months because the telephone system in those days in Morocco, you could not make any form of international phone call except from one post office in Rabat, that had 12 phones connected to international lines. The rest of the country either made phone calls within the city or within the country. Mm -hmm. So it was very, very limiting and restrictive. But in a way, that is, it was very special because you, you were left to rely on your ability to deal with the situation with the means you had at your disposal, yeah. as opposed to relying on what is the perceived support structure that you 
you manifest into what you think is a safe system. So I think it drives you, um, it drives you into the arms of reality and, and, and doesn't allow you to sit in the sort of the, the, the mistress of perception. And uh, yeah. yeah, it's something that I'm, I'm so glad I did. I, I, you know, I, I think a lot of financial opportunities I lost because of that, but the gain I had in, in the human um, endeavor of my life will can never be replaced doing having that experience. And I think, I think it fundamentally changed the way um, I live my life. You know, the experiences that were had and the things that myself and Stephen did in the first half of the trip and myself by myself, the second half I was basically alone, were non-replicatable. There is no possible way you can replicate that. And I think in today's world, yeah, basically impossible. Um, because that world won't exist again. It's a world we'll look back on. Mm. And if it does exist again, it's going to be because of some Armageddon event, which probably wouldn't be good for humanity as a whole. So it's not something I wish for either. Yeah, yeah. No, it, it, it's fascinating. You made a huge experience. And um, you talked a lot about what you learned from, from a self-reliance perspective. And that's one of the things I really appreciated. And, you know, when we were living together in South Africa, it was just the, you know, the degree of... Uh, responsibility and, and self-reliance you had for you know what was happening in your life right I took a lot of inspiration from that myself um, so so I'm curious as well you know when, when you think about that traveling experience and what are the, some of the key learnings that you took and particularly because you, you visit a lot of different cultures so you know what were some of the things that you saw as you interacted with with human beings from all these different cultures that kind of really you know caught your attention and um, you know you, you took lessons from I think the, the most important thing I learned, and it's something that I, I learned at the time, but I think I lost my way with this later in my life when I got married, was priorities. Really, in life, the only thing that you need to have sorted every single day is your priorities. Because the capacity of a human being and, and your ability to have successful actions and successful outcomes is more a function of your priority you can be the most energetic, well-intended person and have all the skill in the world and, and want to do, you know, and, and literally be in your physical prime, your mental prime and everything. But if your priorities are wrong, mm. you are going to engage in destructive behavior for yourself and those around you. Mm. And it's one of the things where, you know, something that interests me is game theory. And game theory um, has this dictate that there's, there's certain people who are prepared to no matter how little the benefit is to them, if the destruction to others, they, they don't take the cost of the destruction to others if they gain any form of benefit themselves. Mm. And what you find when you're able to um, assess your priorities correctly and then try and integrate, be successful in executing your priorities and then looking at the effect of your priorities on those around you. And when you travel the way I traveled, you had this weird combination of having to be part of the environment you were in because you are highly dependent on it. You, at no stage were you influential or strong enough or in a position to influence the environment. So you had to, you had to live under the conditions you were given. Um, but at the same time, your priorities had to be correct. You had to do the right things every morning. So I'll give you a very, very simple, almost trite example is because we were cycling across Europe in, in late summer, it was very hot. So you simply had to get up at 4.30, 5 o'clock in the morning at the latest. So right. first light, have your cup of tea and get on the bicycles and try and knock over the first 30 to 50 kilometers before 10, 11 o'clock when it got too hot to cycle. Mm -hmm. So we worked out very quickly and because I was having to study, that made study time, the best time to study was sort of 11 until 2, where it was simply too hot to cycle. Mm -hmm. We would find a cool place. I could then get up, have my cup of tea, start cycling, um, get the mileage behind us, study. We'd have a little bit of an afternoon snooze. We'd then get back on the bikes for two or three hours and do another. Our goal was we were kind of cycling 100 kilometers a day. Mm -hmm. and. You know, it was a very um, subsistence living. So we still had to give ourselves an hour before sunset to find a place to sleep because we were staying, we were sleeping in fields, in farmer's fields, near the river, wherever we could. So we, we were not paying, we weren't staying in any formal 
type of accommodations. Mm-hmm. So it put a certain amount of pressure on us. We had a we basically had a five dollar a day budget. Our goal was to this holiday to last around about a year mm-hmm. and to kind of be on five dollars a day. And uh, we basically achieved that um, that target. But you had to have your priorities right on days where you got things wrong. It led to huge levels of um, anxiety and the results were poor. You know, we, we like, for instance, we, we rode into Seville the one day when it was the World Expo because for some reason we felt it would be good to go to the World Expo. It, it, mm. it was a very poor decision. Mm. And it, it led to uh, two or three days of incredible levels of um, tension and anxiety while we tried to navigate through Seville on our budget, you know, getting sleeping in parks and right. almost getting mugged and robbed and right. yeah, it, it, yeah. So that uh, whereas everywhere else where things had were seemingly very very simple, mm. the result was far better. So uh, absolutely, priorities. If you decide on what your priorities are and, and you measure your outcomes mm-hmm. against the priorities that you've chosen, not the priorities that are forced upon you, the ones that you have, because obviously any human being has to respond to priorities that are forced upon them. That's the environment. Mm. But if, if you are able to understand the priorities that you choose and execute against them, it gives you capacity to deal mm. with the priorities that are forced upon you. So I think that probably was the biggest lesson I got from that experience. Yeah, fascinating. Well, I, th- I think that speaks to this idea of, you know, laser focus on what's most important. Um, but also an understanding of your impact on, on, on the environment and, and the impact the environment has on you as well and an ability to adapt and adjust around that, you know. Um, it was funny when you were talking about carrying your books and then when one panier in the bag, I remember you saying to me that when you finish reading the chapter, you just don't rip the pages out to make the books lighter. <laughs> yeah, I actually used one of my books at a very, very thin page and it was quite soft and I to make it into toilet paper. I would tear the page out and rub it together with my hand to make it soft and then keep it and use it as toilet paper because you didn't want to carry toilet paper with you. So you did need to use it. So you'd make it into toilet paper and then burn it. <laughs> it was, you know... So the, the books, it's, the books not, it's, <laughs> it's not something that you put in your CV when you're going for a corporate job at a, at a major company, but it, it, it was a practical solution. And I managed to condense um, sort of 17 kilos of academic work into a little notebook of about 100 pages that fits in my top pocket. Mm. And I, I studied and I, I literally, I mean, and the funny thing was in, in those two years of traveling, my all my marks were over 80%. I only got really good marks because I think um, your head is in the right place. You, uh, you know, you, you're very, very receptive to knowledge because there's no phone ringing. There's no one asking you for your advice. You, you're riding a bicycle. You, you, you're thinking about life. Mm. Um, and your priorities are very easy to line up. And uh, you literally are laser focused. And you've got this almost this environment where that if you keep yourself safe, mm. you're able to fully engage in whatever you choose to. Yeah. And well, you're, you're sounds like you're, you're, you're in flow a lot of the time. So you're going to be in flow when you're cycling and then you come off the bike, you've got that deep concentration for the study or flow again. And you're, so it's just like, and when you're in flow, you're, you're jacking up your learning speeds dramatically. Mm. So it doesn't surprise me when you, uh, you say that's when you're achieving your highest grades as well. Yeah. It makes an awful lot of sense. Um, yeah. This uh, this kind of focus on uh, thirty miles before breakfast that that's something you you still hold on to today. <laughs> yeah, it's not quite as far as thirty miles, but yeah, I, I run I run every morning, and it kind of uh, so in South Africa we use a more common kilometer measurement, but I run between sort of twelve and twenty kilometers every morning. So I typically get up at. Uh, Four thirty-five o'clock. I spend about 35, 40 minutes doing stretching and exercises, and just uh, basically trying to get my old body into uh, <laughs> uh, the ability to move. Because the one thing I must say, as you get older, it's your body is sore in the mornings. You know, you slept, yeah. especially ironically, if you slept really well, mm-hmm. it's almost like there's no oil at your joints. So get up, do my stretching, and then I uh, go out for a run between sort of 12 and 20 kilometers, somewhere in that range, depending on the day, and then come back and, uh, yeah, then I I have a little bit of a morning regimen and I've got a sequence of things that I do to get myself ready, and then I head out typically at around sort of quarter to eight to to my day that is, then obviously lies ahead of me. Yeah, no, I, I was fascinated by the regimen, particularly the fact that you do it every day without a break. Um, 
I must say, it's something I would, well, I would absolutely would struggle with. And I was curious as to how you overcame what inevitably must be your struggle as well with that every morning. I remember asking you the question um, when we were together, are there any mornings that you don't feel like doing it? And you made the, the response to me, every morning. Mm. So exactly. I, I'd love to just uh, help listeners understand the mindset that, that then enables you to push beyond that. Because this fascinated me when we spoke. So what gets you beyond the fact that every morning you get out of bed, you do not feel like it, and yet it happens. Tell tell me, tell the listeners that they the mindset behind that for you. Well, that's a very interesting to me, and, and this is something that even since you've been here, you've you made me think about that because my very superficial answer is that I've just made a rule. Mm-hmm. And I find that human beings, and I think that's the reason why human beings like Excel so much, because if you're an Excel fundy, you put your choice in a cell and you only give yourself one option or, you know, literally that's the choice. You tell yourself you choose it, but it's only because you can't go to the next step without engaging that answer. That's the superficial view. But you got me thinking about that. And what it really is, is I'm not, I was born Roman Catholic, but I wouldn't call myself a religious person at all. I've got some fundamental issues with formalized religion, but I would consider myself a spiritual person. So I I have a deep interest in understanding what what perception is and why we manifest as souls in this what we think is a is a universe okay so to the extent that you believe that this thing that we exist in this universe is a thing um it interests me and and, and one of the things that i'm so, i'm starting to believe more and more is that the body is merely a manifestation of what you perceive you are and the very obvious part of your body is, is you see your hands, you see your feet, you feel and touch the extremities of the thing you control. Good. But I believe it extends beyond that. Okay? And I think what happens is when you go to sleep, you, you contract back within your physical manifestation of your body. You know, you sleep and you contract back in it. And when you wake up in the morning, the state that you're in in the morning, you, you, you need to reinvigorate yourself to extend outward into the world you're going to interact in. Okay. And to me, that's the fundamental challenge of spirituality is that it, if you think about it, it can't be easy. It, it, if it was easy, spirituality would have no value. And we know it has value. You simply can't have things that have value that are easy. The nature of a human is that, and I think even in nature, Things that have value that are easy are not valued. Okay. So the attainment of, of, of the flow, as you put it now, and that's another, I, I took that from you when you were here, is that to get back into flow every day is effort. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I almost am happy that it requires effort. And mm-hmm. it's because you know that if you put in the effort, you get the return. Mm-hmm. And it's not, it's not a one-to-one ratio, but it's highly correlated. Mm-hmm. So it's a simple case of you get up in the morning, do you want to get value from today? If the answer is yes, you need to formulate what you need to do that you know that gets the results. Mm-hmm. And it's literally never easy. I mean, I, I, I lie. I think occasionally there's some mornings for some reasons when I wake up that it does seem a lot easier. Mm-hmm. But I don't, I don't think it's ever easy. But there's some mornings where I get up and I just look down at the ground. Mm-hmm. And you try to come up with a story that it would be a good idea to go back and lie in bed and think about something important, okay? <laughs> <laughs> that is simply not the case, yeah. you know. So, if, you know, and, yeah, basically, I mean, I, yeah, I do it every day. On the weekends, I'm a little bit more um, relaxed about the timing of it because I can do it a bit later. I don't have a, a time crunch. But the weekends, I run further. So, like, today, yeah. I ran 33 kilometers, Mm-hmm. So, you know, weekend runs are typically longer, but there's, there's less of a time constraint. So, yes, it's just, yeah, and I, and I used to take days off up until about five or six years ago, but now I, I, there's no benefit in the off day. I, I don't believe in that. I don't, I don't think it's wrong for other people. I mean, I'm not, I would never prescribe this for everyone, but I've definitely noticed for myself that there's no upside for an off day. Yeah. I, I simply do not enjoy my day if I haven't done my first two hours correctly mm. and you know and also for me it's a numbers game I lie to myself when I try to convince myself to do stuff I create a story that on the face of it gives me a reason to do something 
And the run story is, well, that only takes two hours. Why would you not swap two hours to gain 22? It's mm -hmm. an 11 to one gain. I mean, why would I not do it? So you lie to yourself to say, well, there it is. You're getting 11 times gain. Why wouldn't you do it? Mm. So, yeah, yeah. No, it's, 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 it's fascinating. And I mean, what you're talking about is that struggle phase, which is the front end of the flow cycle. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I'm interested in how you've linked it back to, you know, your, your, your spiritual beliefs as well. Um, mm. You know, a lot, a lot of the spiritual traditions talk about the importance of neglecting not the door meditation. And I guess the meditate the, the, for you, running is a meditation in many ways as mm -hmm. well, right? to you know connect with your body, but also to allow the mind to recalibrate. Um, you know, uh, and mm -hmm. get ready itself for the day. Fascinating. So, look, um, I want to skip back to um, coming back to South Africa after this fascinating trip that you'd had. Um, you know, on, on the bikes going around the world. You arrived back in South Africa at the dawn of the new South Africa. Fascinating time in that country. I actually arrived not too long after that because I came over around December 95. Um, and we, we lived together for a bit of time in Cape Town. Tell me a little bit about um, what you've noticed as this new society in South Africa has emerged, right? Because... Um, you know, I mean, it was a very disruptive for 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 uh, lots of people, and uh, yeah, very liberating for lots of people. Um, you, you know, everyone's had their own experience of it. It's unique, as I said, in in, in with different demographics in the country as well. But I know the one thing that struck me when I was there is how much you uh, are committed to the country. In fact, you said with all these other countries you've been to, South Africa's for you was still the, the you know. The best country, right? <laughs> that, that, that you that, and you really were committed to wanting to be there. So I'm curious as to you know what was your experience of the evolution of the new South Africa and uh, what are your thoughts around where it is today as a, as a country? Yeah, yeah, it's very very interesting. You know, and most people know the very superficial level of the history of South Africa, where there was a system of discrimination known as apartheid, which basically caused um, for probably the last. 50 or 60 years, well, before 1995, 50 or 60 years where a majority white government, a majority Afrikaans. So a, in South Africa, the, the, the two main languages white people speak are English and Afrikaans, and the English is linked to the British colonial period, and Afrikaans is linked to the Dutch colonial period. They're the two languages. But then there's a very, very large, um, I mean, for instance, Africa has got the largest Indian population outside of India. I think I think the numbers are something like six million ethnic Indians live in in the area around Durban, mm -hmm. and that goes back to the early days of um, the, the 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 British brought Indian what was then either indentured or slave labour in to work on the sugarcane farms in 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 uh, in what was then the the, co the colony of Natal, mm -hmm. and um, it's a very very large Indian population. It was also a very very large Cape. Well, Malay population, which became known as Cape Malay, and they were brought into the, the, the Cape colony. Mm. Um, and there's been an influx of uh, ethnic black Africans from the north um, of, of the country because of the, the mineral wealth. So there's, a, there's this country where that was basically, you can't say unsettled, but was there was very low levels of population before the Dutch arrived at the Cape. They were basically the Khoi and the Sand people in very, very small numbers because it's quite a difficult place to live, um, this, the southern tip of Africa. It's not, um, it's not an easy place to live. And, uh, you know, there were, there, were, there were tribes, there were black African tribes in what is modern-day Swaziland and northern KwaZulu-Natal, but the rest of the country, the population levels were pretty low. It wasn't densely populated. What drove population numbers was privation. So if you had periods of drought or famine, um, you'd have large, large swaths of the population would die off from hunger because there wasn't any modern agriculture. So it was kind of, it was, it was how you would say humans would evolve naturally. And then what changed that was the colonization and the story of that is told. But the most recent past is the, was the introduction of apartheid, which I think was a uniquely South African experiment by name, but was basically being practiced all over the world. And South Africa, South Africa was, was unique only because it was the minority who managed to get a legal structure in place to control the majority. Now, this didn't really happen anywhere else, and I think there were a lot of reasons for that, which I, 
I'm not going to go into if we're talking about this, but the effect of it was you have this country that is very, very wealthy in many ways. It's got a lot of natural resources. It's beautiful. It's uniquely located. It's got this incredible mix, ethnic mix of people. That is, the diversity in South Africa is far more than you'll get anywhere else in the world. Far more. You won't go anywhere else in the world where you'll see such diversity throughout the whole country. You may find cities like New York and that that have it in a small isolated location, but as a country, the ethnic diversity is just insane. And it's one of those countries that for since basically it's founding, people have thought it's going to collapse. So you go back to the, the sort of the 1600s when the Dutch landed there and made it into a trade port and the Dutch East India Company used it as a trading port. It was it was always on the brink of collapse. If you, if you read the history of the country, the trading station was always on the brink of collapse. And still to this day, it's like that. If you speak to most people, I mean, we're perpetually on the brink of collapse because stability here is very hard to achieve. Um, and it's still like that today. And, and to me, you're either a person who looks, that has been very positive, or a person who sees and it engenders fear in the way they think about the environment. Mm. And, um, you know, we've got this weird combination in South Africa that mass loads of people emigrate. I mean, from my high school year, more about, I would say, I had a class of 20 people, of which only three or four are left in this country. The rest have left. Most um, wealthier South Africans are exposed to probably a 5% emigration per year amongst their friends. And it's 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 quite a strain. And nowhere else in the world do you have that, unless you're in countries that are overtly um, under social pressure. You know that that want to emigrate. South Africa isn't under overt social pressure. This is discretionary immigration because of a perceived fear. Mm. And and but then you get this op- this people continually trying to move here. So you have this weird thing where a certain sector of the population wants to come and live here. To them, it's considered the best place on earth. And then you've got the what are seemingly the people in the best position in the country wanting to leave and go somewhere else. And, the, and that dichotomy is, I, I, I almost, I, I love it. I, I think it's amazing that you've got this, the same reality, yet you've got a perception that varies so dramatically. People are prepared to uproot their lives, to come or go with the yeah. same reality. And that, that to me is... You know, I, I, I've traveled significantly. I mean, I've, I've I've been to over 50 countries. I've just in the US, I've been to over 40 US states. Right. I've seen the whole of Europe. I've spent extensive amounts of time, and there's nowhere else I would possibly want to live. You know, yeah. short of there being an an active civil war happening here, yeah, there's no ways I would leave. You know, yeah. it's almost the, the the DNA and the bacteria of the country is part of my my very being. And I feel comfortable, even though some people might see that it's, you know, it's, uh, it's unstable, it's dirty, it's, it's, it's not predictable. That literally is what makes it to me worth, worth being in, worth, worth being here for. This is, this is very interesting. Um, I, and I'm fascinated by the idea of the reality is the same. It's our perception of it that's different. Of course, how we interact with that is based on our perception. One of the things um, I noticed uh, when we stayed with you in Johannesburg was how many of the houses have uh, uh, armed security, armed def- uh, kind of big fences, etc. And you don't have any of that. No. <laughs> and, and you've never had any of that. Yeah. Um, I don't. I don't even lock my house. I'm quite happy to leave the house open and go. You know, and I've just never. Uh, my value set doesn't. I mean, I have some nice stuff in my house. I have a large television. I have. I have. What I would call modern amenities, but I don't hold them in any. The true value I have is my ability to wake up in the morning, go for a run, be healthy, and have a day where my brain and my spirit gets to be exposed fully to the world. Yeah. That to me is the value. Everything else, if it's there or not, is of no relevance. So I don't cling to it, I don't hold on to it. If it gets taken and I want it back, I simply, you know focus myself to get another one or I just forget about it and leave it, you know, mm-hmm. so that's... And that, and that trade-off for you, um, you know, so you're willing to let some of that stuff go if there's a robbery versus living behind a, 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 a prison wall, <laughs> I guess, is uh, is how you kind of, you, you that's how you look at that trade-off, is that right? Um, yes and no. I, I don't even look at it like that. I, I, 
my view is if I did feel this country was as unsafe as the manifestation I see other people living under, then I wouldn't want to live here. So first of all, I don't see that. My experience is not that. So other people may see that I don't see it. So I actually am not confronted with the trade-off. Um, when you talk to me like this, you can, you can, you can make a case that that exists and I can see it, but I don't experience it. Um, it's the same as, 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 and I think one of the bigger arguments is discrimination and racism. I think I, I absolutely have no doubt people experience and I have absolutely no doubt people perpetuate it, but I don't perpetuate it and I don't experience it. So I know it exists, but for the purposes of my life, I'm in control of that behavior. And it's the same with the perception of fear and the perception of danger. Um, I don't see it or perceive it. Therefore, it doesn't manifest with me. So there simply, there simply isn't that fear and that worry that something will go wrong. And that's the only way I can explain it. I can't, I can't give you yeah. anything deeper than that. It's, 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 it's quite simply just that. Yeah. I mean, obviously, I, I, I'm not an idiot. I'm not going to go and purposefully expose myself to situations where you have high levels of depravity too often. But I mean, I say that and, I, and about three months ago, one of my staff crashed one of my business vehicles into a taxi driver. Now, when I say taxi in South Africa, you all know yourself, I'm referring to a minibus taxi, which carries between 13 and 20 occupants and they crashed one of my four by four vehicles we use for my business into the back of this taxi and happened to be a female taxi driver whose job is to take children to school. So wow. it's something. Yeah. And I felt so guilty because it was my guy's fault. They crashed into her and she has to earn a living. So literally I got to the accident site. It was in a kind of one of those areas where it's a, it's a, it's a very wealthy area, bordering in a very poor area. But I said to the taxi, the lady, I said, look, I want to fix your vehicle right now. Do you know a panel beater who can fix your car as soon as possible? She said, yes, she does. So I literally drove with her. And do you mm. know what car I drive? So I'm driving a fairly fancy sports car into the very center of Johannesburg to go to a panel beater mm. in the dodgiest, in the most undesirable part of Joburg. Yeah. And at no stage did I feel threatened or like there was any, I had any danger against me at all. Now, you may on the face of it call it naive, mm. but I think the way you present as a human around those who you think, I think if you present fear and you present anger and you present um, lack of sincerity or you feel insecure, mm. people behave very differently towards you. Mm -hmm. and, that's, and that's the only thing I can put it down to because on the face of it, the situation was incredibly dangerous. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I can quite easily see how that could spiral out of control. But honestly, at no time did I feel that that would ever happen. And obviously it didn't. And I got the vehicle repaired. And, and when I left there, I felt a lot better that this woman who had had her life imposed on mm -hmm. by very poor behavior by my own employees, who ultimately I need to be responsible for, mm -hmm. got sorted out very, very quickly. And I mean, this woman was so unbelievably blown away that the panel beater actually phoned me two days after I did the job. And this is someone who I don't know at all. Mm. And he just said, he said, really, you, 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 it was great that you helped this woman out and got her done so quickly because it wasn't so much the cost of the accident. It was just that while the vehicle was in repair, she wouldn't be able to earn a living. Mm. And, and, and that was my biggest concern because you take away a person's legitimate um, need to earn a living, you know, and that was the most important thing. Right. It wasn't a money, it wasn't per se a money issue. I mean, I was responsible for that indirectly through my guys anyway, right. but it was, it was the, it, it was the, the dignity of being able to manage your life. And she kept to the extent that I was able to grant her back that dignity as quick as possible. That was very important. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and that's, that is, it's really simply a priority, you know, mm -hmm. and as long as you focus on that, and, and that was my priority and was allow this woman, because I just thought about it, imagine I then argue about the cost of the vehicle and how it's going to be done, who's going to do it, get it in for insurance claims. Mm -hmm. She would sit and manifest and brew and stew about how my poor action is now influencing her ability to earn a living. Mm -hmm. And 
that's not right. So it was very clear to me. Maybe other people don't think that way, but that was the clarity I have. Because yes. that's how I view my life. I, I, when someone tries to get between me and what I want to do in my day, that's the only time I become resentful and angry. Mm. Is that, you, well, hang on a second. You are now trying to impose yourself mm. onto my life. And, and, and that to me is unfair. So that, that was that. So, and, and, that's, and, and that's Johannesburg. So I got exposed to that to get back to the point is that Johannesburg is supposedly such a dangerous city, but I have never, mm. never experienced crime in Joburg. I've seen the old smash and grab that other people have, have experienced and I've chased down people I've been shot at when I'm mm. actually interaction, interacting with criminals, that, but they weren't after me. I yeah. just happened to be someone trying to manage that. Whereas, I mean, every, I mean, I've been, I've been robbed in Morocco. I've been robbed in New York. I've seen a drive-by shooting in the Bronx. Mm-hmm. I was robbed in Sydney. I was, I've been the, the, the victim of attempted attacks probably 20 times while traveling. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. in Johannesburg, no. Now, maybe that was exactly that, is I wasn't as comfortable in those environments. So I exposed myself to that. I, I, I won't ever know. But it's just interesting that a place that is, perceived as being so dangerous for me is just it's easy and it's it's like it's like floating down the river and just you're part of the flow and there's no real you don't bump into the boulders you kind of just flow around them without even trying yeah yeah absolutely and i i think one of the things um and we know we had this conversation when we're over there as well about uh you know crime in general um you go to places in the world today like singapore don't get very much crime right um, i think they still flog people actually for for crimes in singapore no, i think they publicly flog you as well not just flog yeah. you they flog you in public yeah it's it's pretty harsh punishment and that tends to keep everyone in line so there's a way to have a lot of order and structure and discipline in of a society uh, where there may be no crime at all i'm not so sure that's a good thing and um, <laughs> right to have that degree of order and structure and uh, you know Person, where, i can confirm uh, what you say to me yeah. you know if if, if the option to do to not do what you meant to do is not given to you. It doesn't make you virtuous. Mm. It mm. makes you fearful, actually. Well, yeah, and and, and so it may be a safer on, on one level. But what was interesting when we had the conversation was maybe there's a healthy amount of crime uh, as far as a society's overall health is concerned. The like the presence right. of a certain amount of low-level crime actually probably signifies some degree of health within the society. Yeah. Yeah. I, I call it functional anarchy. I think you need a certain level of functional anarchy. And I think what you need is you need young men between the age sort of going through puberty from 13 to 18 being involved in low-level vandalism because I think it's something that is not that destructive at that age, but if not lived and um, and lived out by certain, and it's not all men, I think it's, it's probably particular men that have got very high levels of testosterone and probably certain levels of anger. It's got to be dealt with now. I did a lot of low-level sort of crime is probably a strong word, but it was definitely, it was, there there was a a certain level of low-level child anarchy that I engaged in as a young man that was on the face of it, you would say, is bad. But the reality of it was I dealt with the outcomes of that and the, the society functioned well enough that it could absorb that behavior keep everyone else on their toes, but didn't destroy anyone. Mm-hmm. So a lot of that would have been taken out in sport. I played rugby. And I think, you know, I mean, we know the game of football was designed as a proxy for war. Mm-hmm. I think all, all contact male sports are essentially that. They're a proxy for war. So you do something that stops men going into battle, but gives you the same um, the same form of conflict resolution that requires physical strength and... Uh, yeah, and the, the same, the same, a similar outcome using different inputs, mm-hmm. and I think the same thing with um, sort of you know low-level criminal behaviour, low-level you know it's 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 important you know to me a very very strong society can absorb a small amount of functional anarchy, but the higher level stuff works. You you're able to tolerate a certain level of poor behaviour. And what happens is the lessons you learn as a, as a disobedient male are not repeated in your 30s, your 40s, and your 50s when you can become truly destructive. Because at the age of 15 to 18 or 20, you, you, 
can't really be that destructive as an individual because you haven't got the control of infrastructure, of people, of organizations and money to do anything really destructive. However, if, though, if you don't understand the lessons of that behavior when you're younger and you become older and you believe those are the solutions to the world, you, you might impose them. And, you know, when you're 16 or 18 or 19 years old, you can't impose much on people. You don't, you simply, in a functioning society, you don't have the leverage to do that. Whereas if you don't learn those lessons and you get to become a wealthy 50 or 60 year old and you still have those ideas, you're in a very diff different position where you can potentially cause a lot more damage with your power, your money and your resources than you could have at that age. So that's, that's my view. Interesting perspective. Interesting. I'm not sure if everyone would agree with it, but it's a fascinating perspective. Um, on, and it obviously shows a lot of uh, comfort just with your environment and your situation, uh, you know, that you're in in terms of, uh, you know, the new South Africa. So thanks for sharing that. Um, I'm, I'm curious about the, uh, the, the, the solar business um, now, because um, although like a large part of what you do is helping people generate electricity for their homes, um, there's much more of a vision you have beyond that in terms of what's possible with, with, with solar. So um, could you kind of talk a little bit about your, your vision around that, that whole area, yeah? particularly for the business? Yeah, yeah broadly speaking, um, I think what we're doing is, and this is um, symptomatic of the decentralized internet-based world we're moving towards, which we've seen a lot of the negativity of it now with high levels of communication on platforms like Twitter and Facebook where you're getting an outside, outsized influence driven by the platforms and the agenda of the platforms. But lying below that, we have a world where um, access to certain resources, which was limited to governments 20 or 30 years ago, is now something in the hands of private citizens. And I remember reading a book um, It was called The Sovereign Individual. I think it was written in the late 80s, and I, I, I read the book. And at the time, and it's amazing. Like I, I'm, I'm trying to get another copy of it because over the years I've either given it away or lost it. But it, it was one of the most incredible books. And basically the author, I forget his name, um, but he saw the world we were moving towards. And it was this world where the individual has an indistinguishable level of access to information technology as governments do. And we're moving towards that world. And one of the things, sort of, one of the pillars of that world is the ability to self-generate energy. And the significance of this is, is huge. And on the surface of it, you're putting in a sort of a five kilowatt system at your house and providing 60 or 70% of your energy needs doesn't seem that important. But when you dig a dip, be a, a little bit deeper below the surface, it is profound. So one of the bases of the nation-state system that we've become used to in the last hundred years, and, and the nation-state is, is a very modern endeavor. It's not something that has been around. If you go back in history, nation-states did not exist. You know, you, you, you had empires, which were a grouping of either city-states or pseudo-nation-states, but the nation-state that we talk of now did not exist. And I see us now moving away from that because the benefits of the nation state, the moment you have sovereign individuals, the benefit of a nation state falls away. So what we're seeing here is we see in the ability of individuals to create their own energy. So one of the biggest control mechanisms in the 20th century was the ability to control people's, people's access to energy. So, and, and it's a very simple, if you think back, um, there's quite a famous photograph that people often refer to it's a, it's a, it was the in new york it was the um at a day it was either like the the new york uh freedom day or something in new york where they have a picture and 10 years later the same picture and in picture one there's one automobile and it's all horse-drawn carts and 10 years later there's one horse-drawn cart and it's all automobiles and the the, the access to cheap carbon-based energy so unbelievably changed the nature of the world um, that, you know, we can't imagine the, the, the increase in the standard of living or the perceived standard of living for people because in the past, energy was so incredibly expensive that only the very wealthy had access to it. And within a very, very short period of time, that changed. And suddenly you had a situation where anyone could access vast levels of energy 
very cheaply. And it changed, and it allowed very, very large nation states to literally develop because the, the, the incredible increase in wealth allowed um, surpluses to go to a centralized authority. Okay. okay. Now we get in the opposite of that. The centralized authority has proved to be very, very inefficient, and I think there's not many people who would disagree that the very last people you want controlling resources are governments. The absolute last. I mean even in some of the most basic services that they're meant to provide, they are fundamentally useless because their incentive structure to deliver high-value-added services is contrary to their ability to stay in power. Okay, So ironically, a government that delivers very good services to its people actually vote themselves out because people become more independent. Mm. Now, there's been, in my view, a lot of... Um, tension around that since about the late 80s, and now we've seen the outcome of it. And, and the main outcome is, is, I would call it, there's basically three drivers of this. One of it is the access to individual energy through um, primarily solar, but uh, wind turbines, the ability for small groups or individuals to create their own energy. And, one of the, and, and then there's private money, which is Bitcoin primarily. There's a whole lot of other ways we do it. So now suddenly the money that we used to rely on the state you know, the, uh, in the past is now becoming less and less relevant. People can take their value and they can store it in, in a private money that is not dependent on any nation state. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing is access to information. So the internet, things that were held from you, information that was held from you in the past and controlled by um, organizations that deemed that, well, that decided when the public or people could access information, that's all fallen away. So you can now, to the extent that you have the motivation to go and find information, you can garner or gain any information to allow you to live independently of agreed authority. Now, with those three elements, um, and oh, then... The overarching of all of this is what I call superabundance. We are in a world now where we overproduce everything to such an extent that we've we've basically eradicated for all functional purposes. We've eradicated poverty. It obviously still ex exists in the world, but it's more a supply chain dilemma than a than a shortages dilemma. So there there's there's parts of the world where there's not enough food, but it's not because there's not enough food. We just can't get the excesses we have in one place to where they are the shortages where the poverty exists. Mm. But, but as I say, that, that, that is a supply chain issue and it's busy resolving itself in a whole bunch of ways. And then within that, there's layers of like, to me, there's the electrification of everything because as electricity becomes cheaper and cheaper through self-generation, everything becomes electrified. And, and, and so that's the world we're moving towards. And I'm obviously involved in that now. I see this, deeply with the people I work with. People actually, within six months to a year of having a solar system, their entire view of how the world works changes because they have an element of control that they never had. They didn't even realize existed. Mm. And for some people, it's pretty scary. But for most people, it's just incredibly liberating. It changes the entire way they look at authority and the structured nature of government is that if, if you're not forced to rely on government for some of the very fundamental elements of your existence, you start to question the need for centralized authoritarian government. And I would put myself very much on the, the independence wing of that. I see no authority that exists on the planet that has got my interests at heart more than I have my interests at heart. So you simply can't tell me a story that I would outsource my responsibility to any form of organized grouping of people. Um, and I don't see a single situation where their, their, their incentive is to improve my life. Mm. I don't. If I was to challenge you around that, I would say, what about your security? Now, uh, I mean... I'm talking about, you know, we're seeing right now in the moment an invasion in Europe, right? Um, so, so, you know, these things can happen. And one of the functions of government, obviously, is to keep its people safe. 
Um, so, uh, you know, what, what about the uh, outsourcing of things like security to a, a centralized authority? Can you see a, a value in that? So in the short to medium term, I fully agree. I don't go against that. Uh, I think the structure of the way we set the world up um, encourages, there's an incentive for governments to not have peace. There, there, there absolutely is. And a lot of that is driven by the ability to take away resources. So all wars, contrary to what people think, wars are fought over resources. They're not fought over ideology. Ideology is the subterfuge. You know, so when 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 people fight religious wars, it's got nothing to do with the religion. It's always a resource-based war. Uh, let's not kid ourselves. Um, so in the short term, I agree. I, I, I think that's why this will be a probably a multi-generational transition. But if you move towards a world where the, your value and your resource is unconfiscatable and you are independent to move to where you want to live and live the way you want to live, the incentive for the individual is to be peace-loving. And in doing that, you don't create large, highly funded things we call governments who are, engaged, who are incentivized to create war, Okay. Governments are incentivized to create war, especially imperial governments of an imperial or superpower nature. I mean, it's absolutely evident that countries like the U.S., there is no incentive for the U.S. to have peace anywhere. Okay. And the funny thing is within even the people in the U.S. government are often peace-loving people. I, I don't say that they are individually warmongers, but the nature of the structure of the way we've set up our systems the incentive for them is to create conflict because conflict, the people in authority benefit um, greater from the spoils of conflict than the victims who are at the bottom of that conflict pile. Mm-hmm. So there's a natural tendency, you know, and, and I, I firmly believe if you want to see outcomes, look at the incentives. Mm-hmm. And that's what I see. So I, I concede 100%. I don't debate that at all. But I do think over time that... The moment that you have it, that your wealth is unconfiscatable, and with something like Bitcoin, you're moving towards that. You know, you can't confiscate Bitcoin. So if you invade a country and their national currency is Bitcoin, when you invade the country, what you're actually invading is however many million individual people. There, there is no, it's not like you can go to the central bank and take control of the vaults. There's none of that. And it's the same with if you invade a country and people are producing their own energy, there's no centralized you know, power station or radio station or you know, what do you control? What are you taking? So you invade, you know, I see a place like Johannesburg in 50 years time where there's no power stations. There's a, there's a very big decentralized grid. Energy gets shared, but there's no single point of failure. You can't arrive as an invading force and, you know, take the town square. The town square doesn't exist. Is a grouping of people, and to me, the same will apply in a lot of these things, and 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 we'll see it. And there won't be an active move away from centralized armies. It'll be something where there won't be an incentive to have that organizational structure. And over the next thirty to forty years, those will simply fall away. So what will happen is aggression will sit, aggression and conflict will be at the far smaller level between individuals and I, I actually believe that's healthy i think you know aggression and conflict between people at an individual level is healthy I, i'm i'm not anti people having disagreements and possibly even having physical fights i think that that is positive it's part of how we're made up where i see it being negative is when a person with an ideology that is not significantly challenged as an individual and they're able to build up this ideology through thousands of other people and then apply it on mass to people they have control over, that's when you see the negative impact of disagreement. Mm-hmm. If you have a bad idea and it gets beaten out of you by someone in a schoolyard, that may be the end of the idea very quickly. And yes, that's a trite example, but at a human level, if you believe in your belief and you're prepared to stand up for it, the chances are you've thought about it, you've interrogated it, and it's a good idea. And if it's not a good idea, someone else who has a better idea is going to with the application, hopefully, of, of, of first talking, but ultimately force is going to force you to look at it and maybe change your mind and, you know, rejig your thinking. And I think 
having access and being in control of your own resources forces that reality upon you. You aren't, you aren't able to outsource your responsibility for your own existence. And I think there's a tendency among certain people to outsource the responsibility for their own lives. And that has been efficient for the last hundred years. We've seen great gains in wealth doing that. But we now see in the opposite. We've seen that that is no longer serving us well. An opportunity to take control of your existence using energy production, private money, high levels of, of the ability to share information is rewarding sovereign individuals and penalizing people who outsource their health, their financial well-being, you know, their energy production, their ability to live sustainably, broadly speaking. Oh, that's, sorry, that sounds very, um, very esoteric and very spiritual, but at a high level, that's the way I see it. Yeah, well, it's, 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 it's an interesting vision of where we may end up, right, with, as I said, the center around the sovereign individual. I guess the other end of that spectrum is much more centralized control, as we see today in places like China, etc., you know, um, complete control of the population through the use of technology. So I don't know where we're going to end up. There's obviously there are two ends of two very different poles, right? Um, um, but it's clearly, you know, your vision of hope for, for, for the future from your perspective is very much around that kind of, uh, you know, uh, ability of technology to liberate um, the individual. Yeah. And uh, as I said, you know, from a Western perspective, I think that um, idea of uh, the individual as uh, important and um, in and of themselves <laughs> as opposed to just being part of a group is that's one of the key ideas I think we have in the West. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's interesting to see that's kind of where you think things will go uh, even more in the, in, in the future. Um, I don't know. I think um, it could go either way is where I probably think at this point, it'd be interesting to see what unfolds. Yeah. It'd be interesting to see what unfolds. I, 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 I tend to agree with you. I think one of the things that um, I'm a big believer in unintended consequences. And ironically, if I look at, um, the Chinese way of life, I think embedded in that is in fact a huge respect for the individual. However, I think the manifestation of it with the way they've structured their leadership, it's not manifesting correctly, but I think the underlying force, even in the East, is one of the individual. Um, and I think it will always float to the top. And I think the circumstances to allow that to happen will happen in future. And how fast it happens, I agree with you, I have no idea. I can only obviously look at it from my personal experience and the way I see it and the benefits that I create for myself and those around me. Mm. And I, I don't really see, I, I truly in the long term see only upside to this. Mm. Um, you know, I, I, I don't see that, I don't see a downside in allowing individuals the ability to perform at their maximum. What you have to either do, though, is you have to have it that the conduit to the sharing of that, um, of that abundance in the resource generation and creation of the individual. I, I honestly think people as individuals are better at allocating abundance than large groups of people. I think individuals, when given the freedom to allocate their abundance, make better decisions than groups of people that are are mandated to allocate abundance. So, yeah, that, that's my personal belief. I, I agree with you. It's something that we'll see play out and to the extent that um, society allows us to, yeah, uh, we'll see it play out. Yeah. yeah. Cause this has been fascinating. Um, thank you for the time again. Uh, it's, it's always great to connect and uh, I always love hearing your perspective on life and uh, it always caused me to think. Um, so hopefully uh, that's maybe uh, what's been the, the trigger for the audience as well uh, today, you know, just think about things maybe in a slightly different way. Um, so thank you again. And, uh, uh, best of luck with, with, with this. What is the name of the business, by the way? Um, if we've any listeners in South Africa, who are keen to, uh, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's my generation. So we're based in Janisburg and it's known as my generation. We've temp well, we've temporarily taken the website down because we're so busy and we're getting inundated with quotes. But uh, yeah, we, we only do referral work. So we only do work from people who've referred us from sites we've done. Yeah. But yeah, it's, uh, it's one of the 
yeah, that's what the business is. And we do hybrid grid-tied solar systems, so solar systems with battery backup, which allow you to be independent of the grid should you need to be and then interact with the grid if you need to. So highly flexible. Love it. All right, Cos, thanks a million. Really appreciate you taking the time. Take care. Pleasure. Thanks, Alubes. Goodbye. Thank <laughs> you.